It is absolutely fabulous to be here on Friday morning. You all have made it to Friday. I want to thank again Pastor Mark for the invitation to be here uh, for uh, the entire camp, for how wonderful everyone has been to us, the amazing accommodations uh, that we have here at camp. We walked into the cabin and my son looks around and says, this is better than our house. And so he's going to want to stay. I really appreciate that. He's had a blast. Pastor Chris doing a fabulous job with our kids' ministry. And I just want to say thank you to all of you here. Uh, It is fabulous, absolutely wonderful for me to be able to teach the Bible. There's nothing I would rather do in the world but to be able to teach the Bible before people who want to know the Bible is absolutely the best thing. And I just want to say thank you uh, for being here. Um, I have been teaching at North Central University uh, for the past 10 years, now starting my 11th year. I serve there as the dean for the College of Church Leadership. Now, that is the main college for vocational ministry training, though we have other vocational ministry majors in other colleges like fine arts. If you put all of them together, we have, as this last year before graduation, about 300 students at North Central who are just in a vocational ministry major. They are planning to go full-time into ministry, but if you look at all the students, we have many, many more than that. We have almost 1,000 who are studying to serve God in whatever profession God calls them in, psychology, education, business. They are there to serve God. The mission of North Central is the kingdom of God. And I've been so grateful to be a part of that. Uh, This next semester, we also now have started a graduate program. Uh, We have, for the last few years, a master's degree in strategic leadership. I know some here have gone through that. We're starting a new one this fall, a Master of Arts in Biblical Theology. That if you have your bachelor's degree, it doesn't have to be in ministry or Bible. This is a degree for people who have never even taken Bible or theology. But you say, that's what I want. I want a better understanding of scripture, how to interpret it, how to apply it. We have a master's program for you. And so I just want to make you aware of that because it's something that we chose because we saw there was a need for people saying, we want this further education. Uh, Now, I'm preparing my son for the master's degree already. As some of you have known by giving him Bible stories every night, though I've had to interrupt them for camp because he wants to talk about whatever Pastor Chris talked about. And so we will get back to creation this next week. Uh, But I love to tell him stories. In fact, how many of you know a lot of us grew up on the same children's stories? So let's do a quick test. I'm a teacher. I'm going to give you a quiz right now and see how well you do. Finish these statements. Goldilocks and the... Okay. How about Jack and the... The three little, okay, you guys did really well. You know where those stories are. How about we do a little bit more here? Jonah and the, Daniel in the, David and, well, that was great, 100%. I don't know if you noticed, but we sometimes title Bible stories the same way that we do fairy tales. Because we teach them to children And so they kind of have those titles that everyone is familiar with. And I think that is fine because I'm teaching my son the stories of the Bible. But how many know sometimes the way we teach them to children, there's more going on there than what we're telling the child. Yet when we become adults, 
we still have the children's version in our head. When we become adults, we still have the children's version in our head. Today, I want to talk to you about the story of David and Goliath. No, that was not Bathsheba. That, that's going to be for another time. Another place. Maybe later at night. We're not going to do that story yet. David and Goliath. But here's what I'm going to say this morning. We typically in our culture get that story wrong. We typically in our culture get that story wrong. And that's what we're going to look at. Now, up till now, we've been looking at various characters of the Bible uh, and how they teach us about being the people of God. We looked at Hannah and how she teaches to be people of prayer. Eli, and from a negative example, how we are called to be people of uh, witness. Uh, Looking at Samuel as people of faith. Looking at Saul yesterday and what it means to be a people of obedience. Today, we're finally coming to David the central character of First and Second Samuel, and David is going to show us what it means to be a people of victory, a people of victory, the people of God, the people of God who pray, the people of God who witness, the people of God who obey, the people of God who are people of faith, they become people of victory. We have looked already at how God took a woman who was barren, And he used the answer to her prayer as a replacement for the sons of Eli who perverted worship. We looked at a young man who didn't have a donkey. And how God used that man to be the answer to the sons of Samuel who had perverted justice. But now we see that King Saul is not going to obey God either. And so the expectation is, throughout this story, when the leaders fail, God raises someone up to replace them. So God's going to raise someone up now. And that's where we come to with the story of David. First Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is told by God to go to this little town called Bethlehem. Now, how many have heard of Bethlehem? Okay, yeah, we know this town, but at this time, this town is not the Bethlehem that we know. It is a small little town. How many of you are from a town no one else has ever heard of? That's Bethlehem. I'm from Bethlehem. Where is that? Well, you don't know it. He goes to Bethlehem. Now he says to God, if I go to anoint someone else's king, I'm going to be killed because we have a current king, and technically that's treason. Because Samuel already anointed Saul, and that's what made him king. Now if he anoints someone else, he's taking that kingship away from Saul. God says, you go, you go under the cover of sacrifice, you're simply going to sacrifice. Samuel shows up, the elders of the town meet him, and they basically say, why are you here? How many of you would be freaked out if the President of the United States suddenly showed up at your small little town and you're like, what's going on? Why are you here? Samuel, he says, I've just come to sacrifice, but I want you to invite the family of Jesse to the sacrifice. God has not told David who, or not told Samuel who, all he's told Samuel is how. He said, it's going to be one of the sons of this family. I'm not telling you who, I'm just telling you how. Invite these sons. How many know sometimes God doesn't tell us everything? He doesn't tell us the how, he tells us the who, he doesn't tell us the who, he tells us the how, he tells us the why, not the what, he tells us the what, not the why, because he's wanting us to walk with him in faith. So the people come, Samuel looks at the sons of Jesse, and we come now to our text, 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse number 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab. I now always want to say Airbnb. He called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He is glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So Samuel comes to the feast. The sons come before Samuel, the sons of Jesse. We're not told what they looked like except how God responded. He said, don't be distracted by their height. Don't be distracted by their appearance. The Lord does not look at what people look at. Say that with me. The Lord does not look at what people look at. Samuel is the prophet of God, yet Samuel is still taken by what he sees. Saul was the last person he anointed king. Saul looks like a king. If you're a casting director, he's head and shoulders above everyone else. They will never cast me as the main star in an action film. Hello, I'm Alan Tennyson. I've been a Navy SEAL. No one's going to buy that, right? Saul is looking for a king to play the part. Samuel, he sees this tall man. And God says, don't look at what you see. You need to look at what I see. Now, how many of you, in hearing this, having God say, don't look at his appearance, don't look at his height, if God was to say to you, don't choose someone just because they're tall and handsome, you would immediately start looking for someone who was short and ugly. Because that's how we are, right? Like God says, not this, so we look for the opposite. David shows up. We don't know if he's tall, but we're told he's handsome. Because again, it's not about the appearance. Don't get caught up in the appearance. Don't get caught up in what you see. Don't look at what other people look at, because that's not what the Lord looks at. And the other way to put it is this. Don't set your eyes on the focus that God doesn't have. Focus on what God focuses at, not on what we focus at. Now, this is hard. This is hard for us because it's almost impossible not to judge according to the rules and values of our surrounding culture. But we can't let that become the louder voice in our head. You cannot allow the prejudices of this world to blind us to what God sees, to blind us to how God judges. Don't let what you see become your focus. Don't let what you see become your focus. I mentioned this to the pastors yesterday, but uh, once I was at my church, Cedar Valley Church, and I did something that I, I almost never do. I had to go to the restroom. Now, I go to the restroom a lot, but not, not, not during church. And yet I really felt the urge to go. So I had to excuse myself. It's morning worship. And I also did something strange. I, I normally will go to the closest bathroom, and I can get right back into church for some reason, and it's not because I thought I was going to be loud. I, I just, for some reason, I decided to go to the farthest bathroom right by the exit on the other side of the sanctuary. To this day, I don't know why I did that. I just did. When I got out, I'm walking out, washed my hands because I always do that. I walked out, and I saw one of my students walking towards the exit. 
And I called her and I said, hey, hey, it's so good to see you. I didn't know you go to church here. And she looks at me and she says, well, this is my first Sunday. You know, I, I wanted to come to the church to try it out. And so I said to her, well, church isn't over yet. Why are you walking towards the exit? Why are you leaving? And she said, well, here's, here's what happened. She said, you know, I'm a youth ministry major. And a bunch of us went to church today because we know they have a youth pastor and they're looking for youth sponsors. And so we were wanting to go to see if they could use us. I'm looking for a place to minister. She said, but I'm not like all the other youth ministry majors. How many know that sometimes, even in the Assemblies of God, we look at ministers and we have a type? And when we think of youth pastors, sometimes we have a type. She wasn't that type. She wasn't athletic. She wasn't overly charismatic. She's in someone you would think is going to play soccer with you. She just wasn't that type. She said, so the youth pastor talked to everyone in the group that I came with except me. And I've decided that God maybe hasn't called me to ministry because I just don't look the part. And she said, I was walking out right now, and I've been praying, and I said, Lord, if you still want me to be in ministry, have someone stop me before I hit the exit. She said, then you come out of the bathroom and you call my name. And I'm like, well, we're going to treat this as a divine appointment. And in light of that, I'm telling you, you turn around, you go back, and you introduce yourself to the youth pastor. Don't wait for him to recognize you. If you're called, you act on it. She went back, and she became the Beth youth sponsor for girls we had for the next two years. Here's what I want to say, church. Worry, don't, don't focus on what you see in others. Also, don't focus on what you see in yourself. Don't act like your own gatekeeper. And decide that the culture is going to shut you out, so you decide to shut yourself out first. Don't be your own gatekeeper. Don't focus on what you see. Focus on what God sees. This is what Samuel has to learn And this is what takes us to the very next passage. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the moral of the story of David and Goliath gets misused and abused all the time. Typically, when we talk about the story of David and Goliath, we talk about it as some kind of combative mismatch uh, where there is an understood underdog. So we'll talk about maybe sports, right? Baylor University. Uh, remember when Baylor made it to the NCAA and, and Baylor University, they're the underdog. It's a David and Goliath story or within politics. And this particular person comes out of nowhere and it's David fighting Goliath. Understand, however useful this image is to us in our culture, That's not what the story of David and Goliath is trying to teach us. Now, when the author introduces Goliath, he introduces Goliath in incredibly colorful language. In fact, some scholars argue, and I haven't checked this for myself, I'm just going on commentaries here, that the Bible spends more time describing what Goliath looked like than any other character in all of Scripture. Goliath is massive, There's some debate about whether the Hebrew means he's this tall or that tall, but whatever the answer is, he's taller than you. Goliath is massive. We're told he has the armor made like scales, and again, he's a Philistine. You imagine a fish or a snake that's made like scales. It weighs 125 pounds. He has a spear 
and the tip of that spear is 15 pounds. Imagine taking a 15-pound weight and treating it like a paper airplane. That's Goliath. And Goliath comes out every single day, and he announces to the people of Israel who are assembled on the other side for battle, why do we have to fight army to army? Let's get this over with now. I'll be the champion for my side. You find a champion for your side. If I kill them, you'll serve us. If you kill me, we'll serve you. No one else has to die. That sounds nice, but which Philistine, which Israelite is going to say yes? For 30 days, Goliath authors this challenge. Now, the Bible spends a lot of time describing him, but it spends a lot of time describing In fact, the battle itself between David and Goliath is a lot smaller than all the things that Goliath does beforehand. And I think that the Bible here isn't just trying to get us to think about something, it's trying to get us to feel something. How many of you in hearing the story of David and Goliath and reading about Goliath, how big he is, how strong he is, his taunt, you can imagine the fear of Israel. I'm seeing this massive mountain of a man before me who's wearing armor I couldn't even pick up, and he's challenging me to a fight. Once I was in a movie theater with my wife. I'll confess, I go to movies. It was not Rambo, but I was in a movie theater with my wife. My wife accidentally kicks the chair of the person in front of her who immediately turns around to say something to my wife that was not nice. At which point I try to apologize. The woman's husband gets upset that I tried to apologize because his wife's looking for a fight. He stands up to face me, turns around, and his arms are bigger than my legs. And my first thought is, could you have not kicked someone else, Rhonda? Now what this guy didn't know was that I had come to the movie theaters with my church and we were filling up a lot of that theater. And when he stood up to challenge me, these other guys who were from my church who were on the other side of the theater because we were from me to them, immediately hollered out, hey, Alan, everything okay? At which point the guy looks around and realizes we're all together and just sets down and he and his wife decide not to watch the movie that night, Right? But here's the thing, for that minute when he stood up, I'm like, oh no, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do right now. Goliath stands up before Israel and they're like, oh no, we're not sure what supposed to do right now. But what was the lesson we just read in the previous chapter? The Lord does not look at what people look at. Don't focus on what you see. So now David enters the scene. David comes, Goliath has a spear, 125 pounds, David has a bag filled with cheese. I mean, seriously, read it. He comes showing up with cheese because he's bringing cheese to his military commanders, to the soldiers his brothers are fighting with. I sometimes picture this and I imagine David with a cheese hat, right? Now, I'm not saying he's a Packers fan, I'm just saying I imagine David showing up like this. David, up to this point in the story, and this is important, has not said a word. We have not heard from David in chapter 16. David was tending the sheep. David gets called to the sacrifice. He gets anointed for battle. And the next scene, his father gives him a bag filled with food, including a lot of cheese, tells him to go to the battle. All David does is he 
goes obediently to wherever he's sent. He never says a word. How many ever see a quiet guy and you wonder to yourself, what's going on with that person? How many know sometimes the quiet people become background because you never hear from them? Then you hear from them and you're like, ooh, that guy has a point of view. What's the first thing we ever hear from David? Quiet guy, young guy, not old enough to go to battle, has a bag full of cheese. He shows up, he hears Goliath, and the first thing that we get from David is what? Who does that guy think he is? That's David's first words. Who is this man to challenge the armies of the living God? Now, here's the other thing that's interesting. This is the first time in the story that anyone's brought up God. The Israelites didn't bring up God. When Goliath challenged the Israelites, he didn't bring up God. But when David shows up, the first thing he thinks about is what this means about God. We are God's people. God has called us to this land for a reason. This Philistine is challenging us as if he thinks he's going to win. Who does he think he is? We are with God. And then, of course, David talks a little bit more. People hear him. David also asks the question, what will be done for the man who fights this man and wins? You know, I've said to you before that in, in Hebrew sometimes there's words that get repeated in certain chapters, and it's for a point. And we've looked at particular words. So the first day, Monday, the word around Hannah that keeps getting repeated is ask. On Tuesday with Eli, uh, it was the word call. Chapter 3, call comes up again and again and again. Uh, when we looked at Samuel, it was the word assemble. Yesterday for Saul, it was the word listen. You know what word keeps coming up now? Defy. 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 As a church, we are called to pray. We are called to respond to God's call. We are called to assemble together. We are called to listen to God and obey. But what do we do when we face a world that defies God? What do we do in light of defy? David offers to fight Goliath. Saul tries to give him his armor. It won't fit David. So David goes with just a slingshot. He faces Goliath who gets insulted. Again, Goliath has been saying this whole time, bring me your champion. Israel brings a boy who wasn't old enough to come to the battle. Goliath is offended and basically realizes Israel's just wanting to get this over with. They're not giving him a challenge. Goliath looks at him and says, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb. And then we get David's response, 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning at verse number 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's the battle is the Lord's. I think this is the lesson 
that 1 Samuel has been trying to lead us to from chapter 1 till now. The battle is the Lord's. 2004, the world experienced one of the greatest natural disasters actually in recorded history. Uh, On the day after Christmas, around 8 o'clock in the morning local time, there was a massive earthquake in the Indian Ocean. That earthquake created a tsunami that hit a number of nations. By the end of it, about 230,000 people had died. To put that in perspective, every single day on average, 150,000 people die around the world every day. 100,000 of that on average is from age-related illnesses. But on this day, we lost 230,000 people in a natural disaster. Now, one of these beaches that was hit uh, was a beach uh, in uh, Thailand. And there was a young girl on the beach by the name of Tilly Smith. She was 10 years old. She was from England. Uh, Tilly was with her mom, her dad, and her younger sister. Two weeks before they went on vacation in Thailand, Tilly had been in geography class. And geography class had actually talked about tsunamis. They had shown pictures of tsunamis. She actually watched a video of a tsunami in Hawaii off the coast in 1954. They had it recorded, what it looks like. So that morning, they're out on the beach, and she sees the signs of a tsunami. The waters are rolling in, but the waves aren't going back out. It's getting all frothy, like you would find in a beer. I don't know what that is, but some people do, like you would find in a beer. Uh, There's logs in the water that are just moving in circles. She, this 10-year-old girl, starts to freak out, and she's saying to her parents, a tsunami's coming, a tsunami's coming, a tsunami's coming. Her parents are like, calm down, everything's fine. If there was trouble, they would let us know. But she gets so nervous, we're going to die, we've got to clear the beach, we're going to die, we're going to die, that her little sister starts to cry, because her older sister is saying, we're going to die. Finally, the dad says, I'll take the little sister back in the hotel, just, just to get her off the beach. The mom is mad at her daughter for causing this scene, and the mom basically says to her daughter, we're going to stay out here on the beach, and you're going to walk with me. So they start walking the beach, the mom trying to convince the daughter to calm down. You've scared your sister. You're upsetting this vacation. Now, the the newspaper didn't go into that kind of detail, so I, I just know the mother was correcting, according to the newspaper, the daughter. Tilly says to her mother, at some point, continuing to look at the waters, Mom, I'm sorry, but I cannot stay with you. A tsunami's coming and I have to go. And she leaves her mom on the beach and runs into the hotel to join her dad and sister. Her mom's still out there on the beach. Now, when the sister sees Tilly come in and the mom is not with her, her little sister starts to cry again. The dad has gotten her calmed down. The little sister is crying. At this point, a Japanese security guard who's working in the lobby sees what's going on. He walks over to the family to see, is everything okay? And the dad says, I'm sorry, but my little girl is just convinced a tsunami's coming. The security guard is from Japan. He knows what a tsunami is. And he asks, why? Why do you think a tsunami's coming? And she tells him what she's seen. And the guard says, a tsunami is coming. And he runs out, gets security. They clear the beach. And by the time the waters come in, not one life is lost on that beach. And Tilly Smith is credited to this day with saving over a hundred lives. Now, this was a credible story that people were talking about in the days after the tsunami, but the problem was this. The waves hit the beach two hours after the earthquake. 
Warning had actually gone out when the earthquake occurred, and a lot of governments had actually heard that they saw the tsunami was coming. In fact, the last beach hit by the tsunami was eight hours after the earthquake. And yet a lot of governments decided not to say anything because they didn't want to upset tourism. So an editorial was written about this, and the title of the editorial was simply this. Why did a 10-year-old girl know what most governments did not? Why did a 10-year-old girl know what most governments did not? And when I read 1 Samuel chapter 17, I have to ask myself, why did a shepherd boy know what the nation of Israel forgot? God has delivered Israel time and time and time again. This is the God who delivered them from slavery. This is the God who delivered them into the promised land. He's the God who delivered them with 300 under Gideon. How in the world could they forget the lesson that David knew that the God who made a covenant with Israel will always fight for his people for the sake of his name? The battle depends on God, not on us. Why was David the only one to realize that? Now, of course, in the story, it's using this as a revelation of David's character. David is suited to be king more than Saul. Goliath has a spear. David has cheese. But David is the one who wins. David trusted God when everyone else let their fear get ahead of them. Everyone else saw Goliath. Everyone else focused on what they saw, but David didn't see Goliath. What David saw was God. He wasn't focused on the giant. He was focused on the God of Israel. Even when David says to Saul, look, I can do this. I faced bear and I faced lion and I've won. He wasn't bragging on himself. The way he tells the story is God has delivered each and every time. I know God can deliver me. In fact, not only that, But in the story, David keeps asking, so what will be done again for the man who delivers Israel from this giant? What will be done again? He's going to receive what? He's going to receive what? Why does David keep asking this? Because David feels like he has a winning lottery ticket, and he can't imagine no one else sees this. This man has defied the armies of the living God. There's no way this man is going to win. How in the world is no one else seeing this? What did Saul say he was going to do? We're not going to have to pay taxes. He's going to give the daughter. We're going to become a hero. Okay, okay, okay. Where do I sign? He knew. He knew. Why does this young shepherd know what sometimes I think we as Christians forget? Why do we have such a hard time remembering that the battle is the Lord's? Now, I don't account for every reason, but I'll give you some that I think. I think sometimes we as Christians actually lose our sense of dependence on God. We start to trust in our own resources so much that when the day comes that we lose those resources, we don't know what to do because our source hasn't been God, it's been something else. We forget the battle is the Lord's. I think sometimes we as Christians simply cannot see how God will win the victory because what we're trusting in is in our own imagination. And if we can't imagine it, we can't see how God will do it. I have ever thought to yourself, God has to answer this, but I don't know how and that scares me because I can't see a way out for God. God's power is not limited by our lack of imagination. 
God's power is not limited by our lack of imagination. Don't depend on your resources. Don't depend on your imagination. And I think sometimes the reason we doubt, the reason we wonder how can God do this, is because we're depending on our own planning. Sometimes I think we struggle because if God provides the victory and it doesn't happen the way I thought it would, sometimes what worries me is it's not my win, it's God's win. I want to be the one who planned. I want to be the one who accomplished. I want people to come up to me and pat me on the back and say, look at how God used you. But if God decides to bypass me to bring the victory, if God doesn't use my plan, if God doesn't use my imagination, if it's his win and not my win, sometimes that's not what I'm looking for. Are we trusting in our resources or God? Are we trusting in our imagination or God? Are we trusting in our planning or God? The battle is the Lord's. David saw this. David recognized this. And I think this is the point of the story of Goliath. It is a story of a combative mismatch, but the mismatch is not David versus Goliath. The mismatch is Goliath versus God. And in the story of David and Goliath, the underdog loses. In the story of David and Goliath, the underdog loses. David is the only one to recognize that it's God who's fighting, not him, and there's no way that Goliath is going to win. It's not David versus Goliath. It's Goliath versus God, and David can't imagine how no one else sees this. The battle is the Lord's. By recognizing the battle is the Lord's, David's able to act. He couldn't believe no one else could see that Goliath was going to lose. And knowing that at the Lord's battle is what frees us to act because we can trust in God's ability more than our own. How many know that sometimes we don't act because we can't imagine how we would do it? I wait until God maps it out for me because I can't see how I'll be enough. That's okay. You're not enough. The battle is the Lord's. Now, I told you the story about Tilly Smith, but it actually happened again in 2009. There was another tsunami, and a 10-year-old girl by the name of Abby Wurzler was on a beach in New Zealand. Or she was from New Zealand. She was on a beach in Samoa. A tsunami, she recognized the signs on the beach. This was just five years after the Indian Ocean tsunami. So people were much more willing to believe what a 10-year-old girl has to say. She went around to beachgoer after beachgoer telling them a tsunami's coming, a tsunami's coming. Her parents quickly packed up their bags. That started a commotion on the beach. Other people started packing up. And before the waters hit, everyone had left the beach. And Abby was credited with saving dozens of lives. I think it's amazing. And I look at these stories of Abby and Tilly. And I wonder what lesson can I pull from this? And I could say practically that one lesson is, if you're ever on a beach and a 10-year-old girl just comes up to you and tells you to run, don't question it, just go. Don't ask why, grab your stuff and leave. But another lesson, another similarity between these stories is that in the news, both girls credited their teachers with their saving knowledge saying that it was something they had recently learned in school. In fact, they interviewed Abby's teacher, a woman by the name of Kay Madge. 
And Kay Madge said this. She was quoted as saying, this is the first time in 20 odd years of teaching that I can be absolutely sure that something I taught sunk in and stayed in and that it was me that taught it. It's the first time I can be sure of this. I'll be honest with you, as a former pastor and now a current teacher, I totally get that. I have wondered at times in my profession in ministry what kind of difference I might be making. Uh, With my students, the tests are over now that we've hit the summer, but I wonder how much they're going to remember from what we've talked about. Did they get this inside them or did they just abuse their short-term memory? As a pastor, I've wondered this question. I've wondered, constantly frustrated, that some in my church seem to grow so little or even go backwards in their life choices. It's a lot easier to measure sometimes the growth of new believers than it is to measure the growth of established believers. And the question I sometimes wonder is, am I doing enough? Am I doing what God has called me to do? And I have to remember that the battle is the Lord's. Pastor Mark has asked if I would share stories of death, of, 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 of times I've almost died. And, I, and I've told him, I knew he was talking about one story in particular, and I want to give you the story here at the end before we close. Uh, really to illustrate what I'm talking about is the battle is the Lord's. When I was uh, 15 years old, I was part of a, a growing youth group at my home church where my dad and mom were pastors. Uh, we had struggled with our youth ministry uh, throughout my mom and dad's pastorate. Uh, We had local people. This was a time where you didn't actually hire youth pastors. It was just people in the church who said, I'll do the youth group. And we had wonderful people who really didn't know how to do youth ministry. And then this one year, the vice president of the local bank had had an experience with Jesus. And he said, could I be the youth pastor? We said yes. He was also our choir director. And he became a youth pastor like our church had never seen. Our youth group, within a few months, went from 20 to over 50. And we were going to take a trip to an amusement park. And our youth pastor said, I want you to invite your friends so they can be a part of us. So the day comes for us to go, and we had over 70 people show up for this trip. We had a bus, a youth bus. It was an ordinary school bus we had bought that was no longer in use, and it had 22 seats in it. Each seat could hold three students, so that was 66 people plus the driver. We put 67 people on that bus. Some others followed in cars, and we spent the entire day at this amusement park in Kings Island, Cincinnati, Ohio. When it was over, it's a Saturday, we were just driving back home to get back in time so our parents could pick us up and we could be at church that Sunday. While we were celebrating at Kings Island, there was a factory worker by the name of Larry who was also celebrating getting off work for the weekend. He went to a bar with a bunch of his friends. Uh, From there, they hopped to another bar and then decided to go home and do some vodka shots. By the end of the evening, Larry was drunk. Uh, Now, Larry had recently lost like 100 pounds. So he was drinking what he was used to drinking, but he was 100 pounds lighter. His friends recognized that he was too drunk to drive, and they initially took his truck keys away from him. But Larry only lived a mile away from the house. And he said, I'm a mile away. It's one exit over. I'll be fine. Just let me get home. So they gave him his keys back. He got on the interstate 
but in his uh, drunken stupor, he got on the wrong exit and got on the wrong side of the interstate and started driving, trying to find his exit to his house. And it's while he was doing this that he met our church bus. We were on our way about two hours from our home church, one hour from Kings Island. We were driving in a very kind of hilly, mountainous area so that Larry's coming around a hill We can't see his lights until we come around the hill on the same side of the road going opposite directions. They said that our associate pastor, our executive pastor who was driving the bus, probably had about two seconds to react from the time he saw Larry Mahoney. We hit him right headlight to right headlight. Uh, He crushed the doorway of our bus, which is where our youth pastor was standing at the time drove the axle about 18 inches under the bus, punctured the gas tank, the sparks cause a fire, the engine explodes, the fire sweeps under the bus, starts coming up through the sections of the bus and catching the seats on fire. Now, this is an ordinary school bus. Before the day where they had all the emergency exits, because this accident is the reason why we have those emergency exits. It became law in light of this. I'm in the back, sleeping two rows from the exit. The crash happens, wakes me up, but I was dead asleep. A lot of us were. How many have traveled with youth before? After a long day, they fall asleep. I woke up to a jolt and screams. I jump up and turn around because the scream I heard closest was behind me, and when I do so, I'm facing an open emergency door. At that point, the people who are now behind me rush to get out, and they knock me out of the bus. I fall. I just woke up, and I have no idea what's going on. All I see are people's feet running. And I decide, which is probably wisdom, whenever feet are running, get up and follow. I run after them until finally I see a pair of feet I recognize, because there's a friend who wore a size 16 shoe. He's the only one who had those feet. I look up and I'm like, Larry, what's going on? And I just see Larry looking past me and I turn around and I see that our bus is fully in flames. And there are still people who are trying to come out. Eventually, uh, there were people who stopped on the interstate. Registered nurse happened to have a bunch of blankets in the back of her car, starts throwing blankets over kids who are still being pulled out of the bus, laying them out on the street. Eventually, uh, some truckers who were also stopped, they use their lights and create a helipad on the interstate so helicopters can land and start airlifting people. They use the ambulances from five different hospitals. Now, one of the minor miracles in this is that I'm the pastor's kid. Uh, Our associate pastor was killed. Uh, They actually, he could have probably gotten out the driver's side door, but where they found his body was with two eight-year-old girls still in his arms And it looked like he had grabbed them and he was trying to get them out when they were overcome by the smoke. Youth pastor had been crushed. Uh, One of the other adults had also been killed. Uh, One adult had survived. She was a visitor. She actually just came for that trip to sit with one of her friends. She passed out outside the bus. We didn't know her. She didn't know us. I'm 15 and I'm about the oldest person out there from our youth group. So the first state trooper arrives. And I got to be honest with you, I'm thinking like a pastor's kid. My dad is back at the church two hours away expecting us to arrive, and I know parents are coming. There's no cell phones. This is 88, and I've got to get word to my dad. I've got to tell my dad what happened. 
So I run up to the state trooper, who actually is, is, he had just got there, he opens the door. I remember he's gripping the sides of the door like this, watching the bus burn. And I'm trying to get his attention, he doesn't hear me. And finally an EMT arrives and he kind of snaps and immediately starts directing things. I come to the state trooper and I'm like, you know, sir, my name is Alan Tennyson. We're from Radcliffe First Assembly of God. My dad's the pastor. You know, I just kind of spill everything out. Now here's the thing. One of the first kids who was brought to the hospital was a young man by the name of Conrad. Conrad's dad was a sergeant at Fort Knox. Uh, We were a military church. About 75% of our families were military because we were Fort Knox, Kentucky, Radcliffe, Kentucky. Uh, Sergeant Garcia hears from his son who gets to the hospital, calls his dad first thing. He calls my dad at the church. At this point, we're supposed to be there and no one's arrived and my dad has no idea what's going on. And he just says to him, Pastor, they're taking our children. You know, there's been a horrible accident. They're taking our children to multiple hospitals. My son's in one of them. I'm going to pick him up. Bye. And hangs up. That's all my dad has to go on. He immediately calls the board in, calls my mom in, and they're like, what's going on? What happened? He says, I don't know. My mom says to my dad, what about Alan? I don't know. We just need to get everyone in here. Finally, as he's calling around, he gets a hold of the state police. And the state trooper he talks to was the one that I talked to. First word out of the state trooper's mouth is this. Pastor, before I tell you anything, I need you to know that your son stood beside me tonight. And your son is fine. And at that moment, my mom said on the phone, she saw my dad's face drain. And how many know that you're a parent before you're a pastor? And when my parents heard that, they had the freedom to be pastors. That was the grace of God. What happened was they told my dad that there were fatalities. They still didn't know how bad it was. Uh, I was taken to one of the hospitals with those who were not as injured. I had just injured my foot falling off the bus, and it swelled up, and they checked it wasn't broken. So Conrad Garcia's dad, Sergeant Garcia, came, uh, uh, took all the kids that they would release into his van, took us back to the church. We get there on a Sunday morning, and this is the first time that I realize how bad it is because I show up to our church on a Sunday morning, and our parking lot is filled with news vans. And suddenly I realize this, this is something. I get out. I am told that they rushed our youth group to five different hospitals, and in the chaos, they hadn't been able to write down names, so they couldn't account for where everyone went, and there were 33 they couldn't find, and 16 bodies on the bus. So I look at the list of my 33 friends, wondering which of those are alive and which of those aren't. Though later in the day, because what happened was the bodies had collapsed because of the smoke between the 8th and 10th rows and created a wall of bodies. And they first thought there were 16, but as they started pulling them apart, they realized there were more. And the number jumped from 16 to 22. Then later in the day, 22 to 24. Then later in the day, 24 to 27. And finally stopped at 27. Three adults, 24 children. My dad and 48 hours preached the funeral of 16 people. Eight of, most of them kids. Most of them kids. Uh, It was a horrific time for our church, and what my parents had to do every morning was wake up and remind themselves that the battle is the Lord's. That whatever we go through today, whatever we face today, we can't worry about tomorrow, They had funerals to plan. They had parents that were grieving to be with. They had kids in burn units who were going to be having surgeries for the next year and a half. They needed to be with them. 
This drunk driver actually survived. Now they had a court case to go through and to walk with the parents through that. Oh, with the woman who died on the bus, the adult, her husband was another sergeant, Sergeant Williams. He was actually the first sergeant at Fort Knox Hospital. He had two daughters on the bus. None of them survived. He said to my mom and dad that I'm an only child. My parents were only children. My mom and dad are dead. I have no mom and dad. I have no aunt and uncle. I have no cousin. I have no grandparents. Now I have no wife and I have no daughters. He said, do you know what it's like to live in a world where there's no one who's related to you? There is no one in this world that's actually related to me. He had a hard time. I could follow the stories of every person who experienced loss in this, but would you give me the patience just to follow his story? He lost his wife and his two daughters. Lee had a tough time. My parents walked with Lee through this. What Lee would do at the end of every day from work, he would go from Fort Knox to his house. Uh, He would actually drive an hour and a half out of the way to go to a donut shop to get one donut and a cup of coffee. It must have been a great donut, but he was trying to fill time. He would drive back home, pull into the driveway, pull his car seat back, and go to sleep in the driveway. Then in the morning, he would get up, he would go inside the house, get ready for work, and then he would go to work and he would repeat. Uh, One day, my parents were having lunch with Lee because they were watching with all the families, walking them through this. And Lee came, and Lee looked even more sad. And my mom said to him, Lee, what's wrong? What happened? And Lee said, I lost the last tie to my family today. He said, when my girls were little, we bought a dog for them. And that dog has been grieving herself to death. She spends all day going from room to room to room looking for the girls. She won't eat, said the only way I can get her to sleep is I take their clothes and I put it on the floor next to her. He said, the vet convinced me this morning the humane thing to do is to put her down. So I lost the last tie to my family today. As he left after the lunch, walking out with his chin on his chest, my mom said that she said in her heart, Lord, if someone doesn't get a hold of you for him, that man's not going to make it. She said, the Lord said to her, well, you're someone. And my mom cleared her schedule, and she spent the next three hours in prayer for Lee Williams. Now, in Pentecostalism, we have this thing that we sometimes call praying through. I mean, you've heard that before. Praying is when you touch heaven. But praying through is when you stay there until heaven touches you. She stayed for three hours in prayer until she had an answer from God. And what she felt the Lord say to her was this, I will restore his joy once again. So she calls Lee up and says, I have a word from the Lord for you. He goes, what is it? She said, the Lord has told me he will restore your joy once again. He said to her, that's all I have to look forward to right now. Cut to a few months later, Lee calls her up. He says, you know, our associate pastor who died, his wife, his widow, her name was Dottie. She also had three kids, one who was burned critically on the bus, two who survived, who weren't there. He said, Dottie's one of the only people, really, that understands what I'm going through. She's got a daughter who was burned. She lost a spouse. I want someone to talk to about this. Do you think I could ask Dottie out for a date? And my mom said, no, Lee. She lost her husband a few months ago. You've lost your wife. It's too soon. It's too soon. He goes, okay. 
The next month, he calls her back and says, do you think I could ask Dottie out this month? She goes, no, Lee, it's too soon. He says, okay, calls the next week. You think I could ask her out? It's too soon, Lee. Calls her the next month. Finally, he calls her and says, I'm asking her out tomorrow. And my mom says, Lee, I'm about to have lunch with Dottie today. Let me play CIA for you. Because my mom's joke was that Lee didn't know she was a double agent. She goes over to Dottie's house, and they're sitting there getting ready to leave for lunch. My mom just asks her casually, Dottie, do you ever want to get remarried? And Dottie says to her, well, I'm in my 30s. She said, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life alone, but I'm a widow with three kids, one of whom is going through surgeries. Who would take that on? And my mom said, well, let me think about it. She said, what would you say if Lee Williams asked you out? And Dottie said, I would say he should have done it yesterday. My mom had an answer, but she wanted to hear that answer from God. So on the way to the restaurant, she prayed quietly to herself and said, Lord, you know there's been too much heartbreak in this church. We can't stand anymore. If this is of you, let Lee Williams be at that restaurant for lunch when we go there. He works at Fort Knox. He's not supposed to be anywhere. They pull into the restaurant, and guess who's in the parking lot? It's Lee Williams. My mom says to him, Lee, what are you doing here? She said, I knew what he was doing there. I didn't know if he did. And Lee said, well, it's the craziest thing. Our colonel had a going away party today, and we had planned it for months at another restaurant, but when we got there, they had lost our reservation. So we were forced to come here. My mom's like, I've got an answer from God. That night, Lee calls her and says, I saw you're with Dottie today. What did she say? She said, you should have asked her yesterday. He responded, I would have if you would have let me. He asked her out that next day. They had lunch for four hours just talking. Dottie calls my mom that night, and she says, I think I'm in love. They dated for the rest of the year and into the next year when finally they decided that they wanted to get married. And when they got married, it became a community event because the entire town went through this tragedy together. Everyone showed up. And rather than lighting two candles for one unity candle, the kids participated in the wedding, and they had five candles lighting one unity candle. Now, that was a beautiful day, but let's cut now to Christmas. That first Christmas morning with Lee as the husband of Dottie. They're celebrating Christmas. And at the end of it, the oldest daughter, 15, Christy, who had been going through multiple surgeries with skin grafts, she said to Lee, Lee, I've talked it over with my little brother and my little sister. She said, we know we'll never take the place of your daughters in your heart, but we're asking if this morning you would make room for us. And we know that, and, and you know that you'll never take the place of our dad in our heart, but we want you to know this morning we've made room for you, and we'd like to know if it's okay that today we start calling you dad. And Christy wrapped her arms around him and said, Merry Christmas, dad. And the little boy Robbie wrapped his arms around him and said, Merry Christmas, dad. And the five-year-old Tiffany wraps her arms around him and says, Merry Christmas, daddy. And Lee said, I cried uncontrollably for 90 minutes. Because the words I had been longing to hear for two years, I heard once again. And he called my mom and said, today is the day that God restored my joy. Yesterday, 
was their 32nd wedding anniversary. They now have 11 grandchildren. He retired from the military, went into the ministry, and spent almost the next 30 years as the men's director for the state of Kentucky. God is good, but we have to remember the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. So as we go to the Lord in prayer this one last time, and I'm going to ask our worship team to come up, I just want to ask you what it is that you're fighting with today. What is it that you're struggling with? What is it that is hitting you so hard that you say, I can't focus on what I should focus on because I can only focus on what I see? This morning, I want to tell you that the battle is the Lord's, and for the sake of his name, God will answer the needs of his people. I want to pray. I want you to offer that to the Lord because God is fighting for us even as he asks us to represent him. And as we close in song, I want us to close in victory for the grace of God. Father, I want to thank you that you are a God who wins, winning not for the sake of winning, but for the sake of grace. And Lord, I thank you that you see us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know what it is to serve you as God, that has never made a commitment of faith to you to become a follower of Jesus, God, I pray for that person right now. And I just ask that in their hearts, they would turn to you in faith. They would admit that they need you in their life to forgive them of their sin. And they would make a commitment and trust that they will belong to you and ask you to be their God. We pray this based on the sacrifice of Jesus who died for us and rose again, that we will know that in you we can have new life. Lord, I pray for those in here who are struggling, who have battles they are going through, and they need to know, God, that you are fighting the battle. Lord, whatever the war is, whatever the struggle is, we lay this at your feet. We know that what we cannot do for ourselves, you are able to do. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, Lord, I pray that you would win the battle. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close out here with a word of praise.